Chapter 23 John Fletcher, Part 2 In the 1700s, the position of a parish clergyman in the Church of England who did his duty was one of particular difficulties and discouragements. He did not have to deal with a voluntary congregation whose members had no connection with him beyond that of free choice and inclination. He had the official charge of all who lived within certain territorial boundaries, and whether they liked him or not, in the eye of the law he was obligated to do what he could for their souls. The larger the population of an English parish, the greater are the English clergyman's difficulties. Many clergymen find themselves placed in the midst of dense crowds of people whose spiritual necessities they are utterly unable to handle. The clergyman sees around him hundreds of immortal souls continually passing out of time into eternity, ignorant, immoral, without God, without Christ, and without hope. Yet he has neither time nor strength to get to half of them. A position like this is terribly trying and crushing to the spirit of a conscientious man. Yet this is the position in which Fletcher found himself at Madeley. Who can wonder that at first he felt severely cast down and half inclined to think with Wesley that he had mistaken his calling? However, these first feelings of discouragement gradually went away. Little by little he became adapted to his post, and he saw clearly that he was where God wanted him to be. Once he was settled in his work at Madeley, he never gave it up, and for twenty-five years he did the work of an evangelist among his semi-heathen parishioners in a way that few have ever equaled, and none probably have surpassed. No other parish ever tempted him away. He ended his ministry where he began it. Mandalay was his first parish and his last. The methods that John Fletcher used in doing his work at Mandalay were very simple and apostolic. He was instant in season and out of season, always preaching the word. 2 Timothy 4 2. Publicly in church, privately from house to house, by the roadside, in the fields, and at the entrance to the coal mine. He was continually lifting up his voice and teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. He considered the day lost in which he was not actually working in doing his master's business. A warfare of holy aggression on sin and Satan's kingdom was constantly kept up throughout the district, and no one was left alone. So great indeed was his zeal that people who were determined to keep their sins locked their doors and refused to let him in. Like Ahab, they hated him because he did not speak good of their condition but evil. 1 Kings 22, 8. Even John Wesley, who thought Fletcher was wrong to go to Madeley, later bore this testimony to his work. From the beginning of his settling there, he was a laborious workman in the Lord's vineyard, endeavoring to spread the truth of the gospel and to suppress sin in every possible way. He pursued those sinners who tried to hide themselves from him to every corner of his parish, by all sorts of means, public and private, early and late, in season and out of season, exhorting and warning them to flee from the wrath to come. Some people gave an excuse for not attending the church service on a Sunday morning by saying that they could not awake early enough to get their families ready. Fletcher provided for this also. Taking a bell in his hand, he set out every Sunday for months at five in the morning, going around the most distant parts of the parish and inviting all the inhabitants to the house of God. 
he found abundance of organized wickedness in his neglected, overgrown parish. It was a common thing for young men and women to meet in large groups on certain evenings for what they called a recreation. This recreation usually consisted in dancing, drinking, reveling, and immorality, and it continued all night. Fletcher firmly set his face against these carnal meetings and used every effort to stop them. He would often burst suddenly into the room where the disorderly company was assembled, rebuke the thoughtless revelers with a holy indignation, and confront Satan in his high places. His work in this unpromising field was not entirely in vain. After standing firm against the first outbursts of rudeness and brutality, he generally found his exhortations received with silent submission. In some cases he had the comfort of seeing a reformation in the behavior of the revelers. Cases of sickness in a mining district like Madeley were necessarily very frequent, and coal-pit accidents were undoubtedly very many and often fatal. Fletcher was especially zealous and diligent in attending such cases. It was a work, Wesley said, for which he was always ready. If he heard a knock in the coldest winter night, his door was thrown open in a moment. When he understood that someone was hurt in a pit, or that a neighbor was likely to die, no consideration was ever had of the darkness of the night or the severity of the weather. One answer was always given, I will be with you immediately. Scripture, in all labor there is profit. Proverbs 14.23 It will not surprise any Christian to hear that Fletcher's labors at Madeley produced an immense effect on many souls. At first he did seem to labor in vain and to spend his strength for nothing. People were not converted in large numbers and all at once. Gradually, though, a large number of hearers were led by the Spirit to Christ, and they became witnesses for God in the midst of the sin and darkness around them. Undoubtedly, with success came opposition and persecution of no ordinary kind. This, however, will not surprise any Bible-reading Christian. Satan will never allow his kingdom to be pulled down without a struggle, and his wrath is never so great as when he sees that he has but a short time. Revelation 12, 12. Simply let a great and effectual door be opened to the gospel, and there will never fail to be many adversaries. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. It is a consistent characteristic of a real work of God that is carried on through much persecution. For example, one Sunday, after doing his usual duty at Madeley, Fletcher was on the point of going to a place called Madeley Wood to preach and catechize. However, just as he was leaving, he received a sudden notice that a child was to be buried, and he had to wait for the funeral. Waiting until the child was brought prevented his going to the wood until much later. The providence of God is seen in this, though, in a very remarkable manner. At the hour originally appointed for his preaching, some miners, who feared neither God nor man, were baiting a bull right by the place where he was expected. Having had plenty to drink, they had all agreed to bait the parson as soon as he came. Part of them were then appointed to pull him off his horse, and the rest were supposed to set the dogs upon him. In the meantime, however, the bull broke loose and knocked down the booth in which the ringleaders were drinking, and the people were dispersed. The end result was that the godly people who had come together to hear him preach were enabled to hold their meeting in quietness and safety. To enter into all the details of Fletcher's history 
during the twenty-five years of his ministry at Madeleine, would be clearly impossible in the narrow limits of a brief and condensed memoir. In fact, to attempt it would be only telling the same story over and over again. Throughout this whole period, with little rest, he was always doing one and the same thing, always preaching, always teaching, always trying to awaken sinners, and always trying to build up saints. He was always giving himself up wholly to his master's business. Sometimes he found time to take a few Sundays at Lady Huntingdon's chapel at Bath. Sometimes he exchanged duties for a little while with friends, such as Mr. Sellon at Bredon in Leicestershire. Sometimes he wrote long controversial treatises in defense of what he believed was Christ's truth and against what he called Calvinism and Antinominianism. Sometimes he was entirely laid aside from work by ill health. But wherever he was, and in whatever condition, John Fletcher was unmistakably the man of God, always the minister of Christ, always delighting in work, and always insatiably desirous to do good to souls. I find no man of the eighteenth century, no matter what his defects may have been in doctrine, to whom the scriptural motto might be so justly applied, One thing I do. Philippians 3.13. About the year 1768, Fletcher was invited by Lady Huntingdon to become superintendent of her training college for young ministers at Trevecca in Wales. He accepted this important post with the distinct understanding that he was not to be typically staying there. He felt strongly that his duty to his flock at Madeley would not allow this, but it was settled that he would attend as often as he could, give advice about the appointment of instructors and the admission or exclusion of students, oversee their studies and conduct, and judge of their readiness for the work of the ministry. Whether a native of Switzerland who had not seen England or spoken the English language until he was twenty-one was exactly the man to be head of a training college may be a matter of some doubt. In all probability, however, Fletcher was the best man among the evangelists of the day whom Lady Huntington could find. His reputation as tutor to Mr. Hill's son was probably a strong recommendation. His learning and scholarship were undeniable. His character as a wholly determined man stood very high. In short, if he were not the best person in the world to be head of a college, it would not be very easy to say who in that day would have been better. At any rate, Fletcher appears to have done what he could to give the new institution success. A letter to Lady Huntington, dated January 1768, gives a very favorable idea of his sound judgment. He evidently saw the materials he had to work upon, and wisely resolved not to set the required standard of achievement too high. He suggested to instruct all the students in grammar, logic, rhetoric, ecclesiastical history, geography, a little natural philosophy, and a great deal of practical divinity. The books he especially wanted to have in the library are Matthew Henry's and John Gill's commentaries on the Bible, Richard Baxter's Practical Works, Benjamin Keach's Tropologia, a key to open scripture metaphors, Taylor on types, William Gurnall's Christian in Complete Armor, Jonathan Edwards on preaching, John Wesley's Christian Library, James Usher's Body of Divinity, Johann Scapula's Greek Lexicon, Adam Littleton's Latin Dictionary, and Samuel Johnson's English Dictionary. 
As short and limited as this list may appear for the beginning of a college library, it cannot be denied that it was well selected considering the times. The mention of Gill's commentary is also an interesting fact. It's enough to show that Fletcher's Arminianism did not prevent him from valuing the works of a thoroughly Calvinistic writer. The best account of Fletcher's proceedings as head of Trevecca is to be found in the writings of one of the assistants at the college, and it's so interesting that I will make no apology for giving it in its entirety. He said, I went to reside at Trevecca in 1770. The young men whom I found there were serious and made considerable progress in learning. Many of them seemed to have talents for the ministry. Mr. Fletcher visited us frequently and was received as an angel of God. It's not possible for me to describe the veneration in which we all held him. Like Elijah in the school of the prophets, he was revered and loved and was almost adored, and not just by every student, but by every member of the family. And indeed, he was worthy. The sphere in which he continually lived was one of prayer, praise, love, and zeal, all fervent, elevated above what we would think attainable in this state of frailty. As to others, his one business was to call, exhort, and urge them to ascend with him to the glorious source of being and blessedness. He had time, comparatively, for nothing else. Languages, art, sciences, grammar, electricity, logic, and even divinity itself, so-called, were all laid aside when he appeared in the schoolroom among the students. His full heart would not allow him to be silent. He had to speak. The students were readier to listen to this servant and minister of Christ than to attend to Sallust, Virgil, Cicero, or any Latin or Greek historian, poet, or philosopher they had been absorbed in reading. They seldom listened long before they were all in tears, and every heart caught fire from the flame that burned in his soul. Being convinced that to be filled with the Holy Spirit was a better qualification for the ministry of the gospel than any classical learning, after speaking a while in the schoolroom, he often used to say, As many of you as are thirsty for the fullness of the Spirit, follow me into my room. Many of us instantly followed him and continued there for two or three hours, wrestling like Jacob for the blessing and praying one after another until we could not bear to kneel any longer. I make no comment on this interesting report. I dare not say that I think it would be good to be always converting college lecturers into prayer meetings, but I will not refrain from saying that a few more headmasters of schools and principals of colleges as spiritual-minded and prayerful as the minister of Madalay would be an immense blessing to the Church of Christ. Headmasters and principals too often go into the very opposite extreme from that into which Fletcher went. Too often they are cold, dry, unfeeling, and unsympathizing, and they seem to completely forget that young men have hearts, consciences, and souls. Fletcher's connection with Trevecca College only lasted three years. It came to an end in 1771 in consequence of his steady adherence to Armenian principles and his firm determination to stand by John Wesley in matters of doctrine. He parted from the institution on good terms with Lady Huntingdon and without any bitterness or bad feelings on either side. Whether there was actually as much difference in doctrinal views between him and Lady Huntingdon's party as he supposed is a matter about which I feel considerable doubt. 
At any rate, I suppose it was greatly exaggerated. There's no getting over the remarkable fact that for three years he took a leading part in the great anniversary gatherings at the college and preached side by side with men like George Whitefield, Daniel Rowlands, John Berridge, and Henry Venn. That simple fact speaks volumes. In days of controversy, bystanders like to exaggerate differences and overstate the fire of division. When men can preach and pray together with freedom, we can rest assured that they do not greatly differ in heart. Let us try to believe that all was ordered for good. It's pretty certain that Fletcher could not long have kept his double position as the leader of Trevecca and minister of Madeleine. The double responsibility would have killed him. It's far from improbable that he saw this himself, and wasn't sorry to have a door opened for retiring from the college. About the year 1776, Fletcher's health failed so much that he was completely laid aside from public work and was forced to leave Madeleine entirely for the long duration of five years. He had never been very strong, and for some years before 1776 he had many early symptoms of consumption. Like many unmarried ministers, he had lived alone and had not taken care of himself. At the age of forty-seven he seemed to be breaking down entirely under the abundance of his labors. He himself felt that he had often been careless and pushed his body too much, but it's just one of those lessons that ministers generally find out too late, after the damage has been done. Being too lazy is so much more of a besetting sin than being too zealous that a conscientious man may well be excused if he turns a deaf ear to the suggestion to not work so hard, suspecting it to be a temptation of the devil. I have little doubt that this was the case with John Fletcher. The first two years of Fletcher's forced retirement from work were spent in England, partly at Brislington near Bristol, partly at Newington near London, and partly at other places, but always at the house of loving friends. His one business was that most tiring and depressing one, the search for health, and many strange and various were the remedies he seems to have tried in order to obtain it. At no time of his life probably did his virtues shine more than they did at this time. He gave full proof that he could bear God's will as well as do it, suffer patiently as well as work actively, and sit still and do nothing as well as run about and do a great deal. Let me here express my own firm conviction that this is the highest point of excellence in a Christian. Self-conceit and the love of the praise of men will often help us to preach, speak, write, and make a loud noise in the world. Nothing but great grace, though, will enable us to be content to do nothing and to sit still and wait. It's no wonder that one who came to visit him at Newington, when he was thought to be dying, said afterward, I went to see a man who had one foot in the grave, but I found a man who had one foot in heaven. The last three years of Fletcher's period of ill health were spent in various parts of Europe, partly in the south of France and partly in Switzerland. This European tour was a wisely devised plan, and it worked perfectly. The return to his native air, the complete change of scene and occupation, the freedom from a thousand causes of care and anxiety in England, the society of his valued and kind travelling companion, Mr. Ireland of Brislington, all these things acted with mighty power on Fletcher's shattered health. Little by little he began to improve, 
Little by little he lost the many unfavorable symptoms with which he had left England. At last, to his own great delight, he was able to preach without difficulty. At last, in June of 1781, like one miraculously raised from the dead, he found himself once more in his parish at Madalay. In the latter end of 1781, the same year that he returned to Madalay, Fletcher got married. He was now in the decline of life, a man of broken health, in the fifty-second year of his age. The step probably took his friends by surprise, but it seems to have been a wise and well-ordered step, and one that added much to the comfort of his latter days. The lady of his choice, Miss Bosenket, was one whom he had known well as a resolute Christian for at least twenty years, and she appears in every respect, both in age and character, to have been wonderfully designed to be a helpmate for him. The account of the wedding, which is given at great length by Fletcher's biographer, Mr. Benson, is very unusual indeed, and deserves attention. Seldom, perhaps, was a marriage ever celebrated in a manner so completely unlike the pattern of this world. But Fletcher was no common man, and his wedding was no common wedding. Fletcher's letter to a friend, written shortly after his marriage, is interesting, especially as it throws some light on his reasons for changing his marital status. He wrote, I am married in my old age, and have a new opportunity of considering a great mystery in the most perfect type of our Lord's mystical union with His church. I now have a new call to pray for a fullness of Christ's holy, gentle, meek, and loving spirit, that I may love my wife as He loved His spouse, the church. But the comparison is greatly deficient. The Lamb is worthy of His spouse, and more than worthy whereas I must acknowledge myself unworthy of the companion whom heaven has reserved for me. She is a person after my own heart, and I have no doubt we will increase the number of the happy marriages in the church militant. Indeed, they are not so many, but it may be worth a Christian's effort to add one more to the number. God declared that it was not good for the man, a social being, to live alone, Genesis 2:18, and therefore he gave him a help appropriate for him. For the same reason, our Lord sent forth His disciples two by two. Mark 6, 7, Luke 10, 1. If I would have searched the three kingdoms, I could not have found one brother willing to voluntarily share my good and bad, my successes and failures, and my labor, and who would be gladly willing to unite his fortune to mine. But God has found me a partner, a sister, a wife, to use Paul's language, 1 Corinthians 9, 5, who is not afraid to face the miners and bargemen of my parish with me until death parts us. Buried together in our country village, we will help one another to trim our lamps, and to wait, as I trust you do continually, for the coming of the heavenly bridegroom. In another letter, written at the beginning of 1782, he said, Amazingly restored to health and strength, considering my years, by the good nursing of my dear wife, I attempted to preach lately as often as I did previously. After having read prayers, I preached twice on Christmas Day. Last Sunday, I did something that I had never done before. I continued doing duty from ten until past four in the afternoon because of christenings, churchings, and the sacrament, which I administered to a church full of people. I went from the communion table to begin the evening service and then to visit some sick. This has brought back upon me one of my old dangerous symptoms, so that I had flattered myself in vain that I could do the whole duty of my parish. 
but my dear wife nurses me with the tenderest care, gives me up to God with the greatest resignation, and helps me to rejoice that life and death, health and sickness, work all for our good, and are all sure as blessed instruments to forward us in our journey to heaven. Fletcher's most useful ministry did not last long after his return to Madeley. He died on Saturday, August 14, 1785, after a short illness of only ten days' duration, apparently a typhus fever, at the age of fifty-six. His health probably had been broken down by his long-continued labors in Christ's cause, along with his constant tendency to consumption. When the last enemy came, he had no strength or stamina to enable him to resist disease. Even to the end, he was the same man that he had been for twenty-five years, and his steadfast determination to work on to the uttermost in all probability made his attack of fever fatal. Even though he had become sick on Thursday, August 4, he persisted in taking the full morning duty on the following Sunday in his church. He read prayers, preached, and administered the Lord's Supper, although he nearly fainted several times during the service. From the church he was helped to his bedroom, where he lay for some time in a deep sleep, and he never left his house alive again. Never, perhaps, was there a more remarkable example of the ruling passion strong in death. Like Whitefield, he almost died in harness. Fletcher lay very ill all through the early part of the week. He wasn't able to speak much, but was full of joy and peace. He delighted much in hearing his wife read hymns and treatises on faith and love. On Thursday and Friday he spoke very little, but seemed to take special joy in the text, God is Love, 1 John 4, 8, 16, and in these words of a hymn, The blood of Christ through earth and skies, mercy, free, boundless mercy, cries. Mercy's full power I soon shall prove, loved with an everlasting love. On Saturday afternoon the fever seemed to leave him for a little time. He became so much more like himself that a friend asked, Do you think the Lord will raise you up? He tried to answer, but could only just pronounce the words, Raise me up in the resurrection. To another person who asked the same question, he said, I leave it all to God. On Saturday evening, the fever returned again, and with greater force than ever. It became evident that he was dying very fast. His wife then said, My dear creature, I ask not for myself, I know your soul, but I ask for the sake of others. If Jesus is very present with you, lift up your right hand. Immediately he did so. If the prospect of glory sweetly opens before you, repeat the sign. He instantly raised his hand again, and in half a minute raised it a second time. He then threw it up in the air, as if he wanted to reach the top of the bed. After this he moved and spoke no more, except when Mrs. Fletcher asked, Are you in pain? And he answered, No. From that time on he lay in a kind of sleep, though with his eyes open and fixed, sitting upright in his bed with his head leaning on pillows. He continued in this position for eighteen hours, breathing quietly like a person in normal sleep, and with a countenance so calm and composed that not a trace of death could be seen on it. During this period many of his mourning parishioners, who had assembled for Sunday service, were permitted to walk through the house and past the open door of his bedroom to see his much-loved face once more. 
Finally, at half-past ten on Sunday night, August 14, he fell asleep in Christ. Without a struggle or groan, he entered into the joy of his Lord. He was buried in the Madeley churchyard on August 17 amid the tears and lamentations of thousands of people, many of whom never knew the true value of their minister until they had lost him. I have now followed Fletcher from his cradle to his grave. It only remains for me to offer some estimate of his real worth as a preacher, a writer, and a man. As a preacher, I must rate John Fletcher very high as a preacher. Even in the eighteenth century, when there were giants of pulpit power on the earth, I suspect there were not half a dozen men superior to the minister of Madeley. He was naturally an eloquent man. He had a well-trained mind that was stored with scriptural matter. He was notably direct, bold, and conscious stirring in his way of putting things. Not least, he had a very fine voice and an exceptionally fervent and attractive manner. It is recorded that many English people used to go to hear him preach in French to the French congregations in London, even though they couldn't understand a word that he said. We go, they used to say, to look at him, for heaven seems to beam from his countenance. A minister possessing such qualifications as these must have been a man of no common power in the pulpit. John Wesley, who was no poor judge, used to say that if Fletcher had had more physical strength, he would have been the best preacher in England. This is probably saying too much, for I don't think that anything would ever have made Fletcher equal to Whitefield or Rowlands. However, we don't need to hesitate to place him in the first class among the Christian orators of England in the 1700s. The following passage will probably give a fairly accurate idea of what Fletcher was like as a preacher. I've taken it from his Address to a Serious Reader Who Inquires What Must He Do to Be Saved. Ministers who spend their whole life in preaching, as Fletcher did, seldom have time to think and compose in more than one style. Henry Venn was possibly the only exception to that rule among the great men of the eighteenth century. After quoting a long list of encouraging promises and invitations from the Bible, he continues, Are these, O sinner, the gracious sayings of God to you? Have these compassionate words of God become incarnate for you? Did God so love you as to set forth His only begotten Son as an atoning sacrifice through faith in His blood, thus to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins? Is not the Almighty now just, and also the justifier of him who believes in Jesus? Romans 3, 26. Is not God impartial, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him? Romans 10, 12. Then shout, you heavens! Triumph, you earth! And you, happy sinner, know the day of your visitation. Be wise and consider these things, and you will understand the loving-kindness of the Lord. Do not be afraid any longer that it will be presumptuous for you to believe. Do not fear that God will be offended with you if you come now to Jesus and wash instantly in the fountain of His atoning blood. He not only gives you permission to believe, but He invites you to do it freely. No, He commands you to believe, for it is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. He even enforces the precept with a double promise that if you believe, you will not perish, but will have everlasting life. John 3, 16. 
so that nothing will be lacking to stir you up to this important business, he is gracious enough to threaten the neglect of it with the most dreadful punishment. For he who does not believe will not enter into his rest, Hebrews 4, 3, but is condemned, John 3, 18. He who remains fearful and unbelieving to the end will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 21, 8. How can you doubt, then, whether you are welcome to receive the Son by believing on His name? Come to Him just as you are, and He will make you what you should be. When He counsels you to buy from Him the gold of faith and the garment of salvation, Revelation 3, 18, take Him at His gospel word. Come without pride and without regarding your works. The poorer you are, the better. The oil of His grace flows most abundantly into empty vessels. His benevolence is most glorified in the relief of the most destitute objects. His royal bounty scorns the offensive compensation of your pitiful merits. He sells like a king, like the king of kings, without money and without price. Isaiah 55, 1. Ask and have and take freely are the encouraging mottos written upon all the unsearchable treasures of His grace. Be of good comfort, then. Arise, for He calls you. Mark 10, 49. Stretch out your withered hand, and He will restore it. Matthew 12, 10, 13. Open your mouth wide, and He will fill it. Psalm 81, 10. Bring an empty vessel, a poor, hungry heart, and He will give you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Luke 6, 38. And now, what do you mean, O sleeper? Why do you wait? Arise and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Do not lose time discussing things with flesh and blood, much less in deliberating with Satan or consulting your unbelieving heart. These delays lead to ruin. The Philistines are upon you. Instantly shake yourself. Judges 16.20 If you are not entirely blinded by the God of this world and led captive by Him at His will, then this moment, in the powerful name of Jesus, burst the bonds of spiritual sloth. Like a desperate soul, break out of the prison of unbelief. Escape for your life. Don't look behind you. Don't remain in the plain. Do this one thing, leaving the things that are behind, Sodom and her ways, and press forward towards Zoar. Escape to the mount of God, so that you are not consumed. Genesis 19.17 by the new and living way consecrated for us, Hebrews 10.20, in full assurance of faith, run to the Father of mercies. Pass through the crowd of Laodicean professors, press through the opening door of hope, and fervently take the kingdom of heaven by all that you have. Matthew 11.12. With limping yet wrestling Jacob, say to the friend of sinners, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Genesis 32.26. If it seems as if he intends to go further, then with the two sorrowing disciples compel him to stay. Luke 24, 28-29. Or rather, with the distraught women of Canaan, follow him wherever he goes. Matthew 15, 21-28. Take no denial. Through the veil, that is to say, through his flesh, Hebrews 10, 20, torn from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, through this mysterious veil, torn from the top to the bottom, rush into the blood-sprinkled sanctuary and embrace the horns of the golden altar. Lay all your guilt on the head of the sin-atoning victim. 
Read your name on the breastplate of your merciful high priest. Claim the safety, demand the blessings, and receive the comfort and hope given to all who run to him for refuge. Begin a new, delightful life under the healing and peaceful shadow of his wings. Psalm 36, 7. As a writer, Fletcher's reputation as a writer will likely never stand as high as it deserves. Unfortunately, a very large portion of his writings consists of thorough treatises against Calvinism and in defense of Arminianism. I must plainly say that in these treatises, the worthy minister of Madelais says many things with which I cannot agree because I cannot reconcile them with the statements of Scripture. Yet even when I don't agree with him, I feel obligated as an honest man to admit that Fletcher is a very capable adversary and makes the best that can be made of a bad cause, and that he writes with civility. Indeed, I never can help thinking that he was not nearly as much of an Armenian in his heart as he thought he was, and that in the heat of controversy he was pushed into saying things that he might have later regretted. The following passage from Fletcher's Checks to Antinomianism will give a very good idea of his power as a writer, and will show how thoroughly his mind was filled and saturated with Scripture. It's almost needless to remark that, like many controversialists, he was constantly fighting shadows of his own creation, and that his Calvinistic antagonists hated antinomianism and unholy living quite as much as he did. However, the passage is a good example of his style of writing. He is giving a long list of the sad inconsistencies of many who profess to belong to the Christian religion. He writes, Who can number the adulterers and adulteresses who do not know that the friendship of the world is enmity against God? James 4, 4. There are also the secret idolaters, who have their shrines of images within them, and have set up their idols in their hearts. Ezekiel 8, 12. The envious Cains, who carry murder in their breast, the profane Esau's, who give up their birthright for carnal gratification, the covetous Judases, who sell the truth that they should buy and part with Christ for the sake of filthy riches, the sons of God, who look at the fair daughters of men and take to themselves wives of all which they choose, the carefree diners, who visit the daughters of the land, Genesis 34, 1, and come home polluted in body or in soul, the prophets of Bethel, who deceive the prophets of Judah, entice them out of the way of self-denial, and bring the roaring lion and death upon them. 1 Kings 13. The self-made prophets, who run before they are sent, and scatter instead of profiting the people. The spiritual Absaloms, who rise against their fathers in the gospel, and in order to reign without them, raise a rebellion against them. And the furious Zedekiahs, who make themselves horns of iron to push the true servants of the Lord, 1 Kings 22.11, because they will not prophesy smooth things and deceit as they do. Isaiah 30.10. We cannot count the number of fretful Jonahs who are angry to death when the worm of disappointment smites the gourd of their creature comforts. Jonah 4.8. The weak Aarons who dare not resist a multitude and are carried by the current into the greatest foolishness. Exodus 32, 1-6. The jealous Miriams, who rise against the ministers whom God honors. Exodus 12. The devious Zebas, who malign and undermine their brethren. 
2 Samuel 16, 3, 2 Samuel 19, 25-27. The treacherous Joabs, who give a kiss in order to get an opportunity of stabbing them under the fifth rib. 2 Samuel 20, 9-10. The busy sons of Zeruiah, who perpetually stir up resentment and wrath. The mischievous Doegs, who carry about poisonous scandal and stir up the fire of discord. 1 Samuel 22, 9-10. The hypocritical Gehazis, who look like saints before their masters and ministers, yet can shamelessly lie and deceitfully cheat. 2 Kings 5, 20-25. The Gibeonites, always busy in hewing wood and drawing water, going through the drudgery of outward services without ever contemplating being adopted as sons. Joshua 9, 23-27. The irresolute Naamans, who serve the Lord and bow to Rimon, 2 Kings 5, 17-19. The backsliding Solomons, who once chose wisdom, but now pursue folly in its most extravagant and corrupt forms. And the apostatizing Alexanders, 1 Timothy 1, 19-20, who tread underfoot the Son of God and regard the blood of the covenant with which they are sanctified an unholy thing. Hebrews 10.29. Then, to include multitudes in one group, we consider the Samaritans, who, by an inferior mixture of truth and error, of heavenly and earthly mindedness, worship the Lord and serve their gods. One day they are for God, and the next for mammon. We must also mention the thousands in Israel who waver between two opinions, crying out when Elijah prevails, The Lord, He is God, 1 King 18.39, but when Jezebel triumphs, returning to the old song, O Baal, save us, O Trinity of the world, money, pleasure, and honor, make us happy. However, it is not really fair to judge John Flesher as a writer by his controversial treatises alone. Out of the eight volumes of his works, at least four contain many admirable things, and these writings are far less known than they should be. His admirable Letter to Mr. Prothero in Defense of Experimental Religion, his Portrait of Paul, and his pastoral letters to his flock at Madeley are, generally speaking, all worthy of high praise. Last but not least are his letters to friends. Like most of the letters of the spiritual heroes of the eighteenth century, they are often most excellent. If a volume of letters by Whitefield, then, and their contemporaries would be compiled and published, and I have long regretted that this has not been done, I am bold to say that Fletcher's letters would occupy a very prominent place among them. As a Man John Fletcher's character stands above all praise. I can find very few men from the eighteenth century about whom there is so much agreement on all sides that he was preeminently and assuredly a most holy man, a saint indeed, a living epistle of Christ. His deep humility, his extraordinary self-denial, his unwearied diligence, his courage in Christ's cause, his constant spirituality of tone, his fervent love to God and man, and his single-mindedness are features in his character so strongly marked and developed that even his adversaries never pretended to deny them. As wrong as he was in some of his views of doctrine, his worst enemies never dared to doubt his remarkable holiness of life. In this area, at any rate, the minister of Madeley ranked high among his contemporaries.
Like every earthen vessel, he had his cracks and flaws, no doubt, and no one knew it better than himself. However, they were cracks and flaws that were far less visible than they are in many of God's saints. Let us hear what John Wesley thought of John Fletcher. No doubt he was an Armenian like Fletcher, and was likely to think well of him. But Wesley was a calm, thoughtful man, and was not one to speak strongly in anyone's praise without good reason. This is his testimony. I was closely acquainted with Mr. Fletcher for thirty years. I talked with him morning, noon, and night, without the least reserve, during a journey of many hundreds of miles. During all that time I never heard him speak an improper word, or saw him act improperly, in any way. To conclude, in my eighty years I have known many excellent men who were holy in heart and life, but one equal to him I have not known, one so uniformly devoted to God. So blameless a man, in every respect, I have not found either in Europe or America, nor do I expect to find another such man on this side of eternity. Finally, let us hear what Henry Venn thought of John Fletcher. Though not an extreme Calvinist, Venn certainly was not in the least an Armenian. He had little or no direct connection with Fletcher, and did not move in the same circles. Above all, he was a man of rare good sense and grace, and one whose gift of sound judgment was great and extraordinary. His testimony about John Fletcher is as follows. Mr. Fletcher was a luminary. A luminary, did I say? He was a son. I have known all the great men for these fifty years, but I have known none like him. I was closely acquainted with him, and was under the same roof with him once for six weeks, during which I never heard him say a single word that was not proper to be spoken, and that did not have a tendency to minister grace to the hearers. I once met him when he was very ill with a hectic fever, which he had brought on himself by excessive labor. I said, I am sorry to find you so ill. Mr. Fletcher answered with great sweetness and energy, Sorry, sir, why are you sorry? It is the chastisement of my heavenly Father, and I rejoice in it. I love the rod of my God, and I rejoice in it, for it is an expression of His love and affection toward me. I now close my biographical accounts of the ministers who were the primary leaders in the revival of English religion in the eighteenth century. I have shown, I think, that in the best sense, there were giants in those days. Genesis 6, 4. My readers and listeners will probably agree with me that the minister of Madeleine was not the least of them.